You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Give those ladies a round of applause this morning. Through our, through our ongoing ministry, through Celebrate Recovery and um, ministry partnership with Robinson Baptist Association, uh, we've been in a partnership with uh, Grace Court for a very long time. We've done a lot of ministry out there over the years. And these three ladies have made professions of faith in Jesus and uh, wanted to be baptized. Uh, but if you've worked with us and Grace Court, you know that uh, the rules out there are rather strict on how uh, those ladies are led by that uh, group and the leaders out there. And uh, we want them to come to CR as much as possible. And to be able to do a baptism, we come up with the idea of just doing it out there at Grace Corps for two reasons. Number one, there's a lot of women with children in that facility who've never heard the gospel. So what better way for these three women to proclaim their faith in Jesus but, but among their peers there at Grace Court? And then secondly, get to give them opportunity to connect with their friends and folks out there and share the gospel. Um, it was a great day. We were able to grill out a bunch of hamburgers and hot dogs and feed all the ones who came out, and I appreciate all those who helped with that. But as I said uh, in the video, those three young ladies are now part of this family called Hyde Park, and they need to know that. Uh, oftentimes with Grace Court, when they, after they've stayed there for a couple of years and they kind of got their life back on track, they all moved to who knows where. But I thought it was important for them to know that no matter where they go, They've got a family right here, and that's you. So we're very thankful for the ministry that God has given us. And by the way, for an organization that is run by a county and state level organization, do you know how incredible it is that that group would allow us to come on their campus, proclaim the name of Jesus, and do baptisms there? Uh, that's a work of God, and we're thankful for that. So if you will, turn to Revelation chapter 4. Yeah, absolutely. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 4, and if you will, please stand if you're able this morning as we read this text. I had someone tell me last week, Pastor, are we going to keep standing when we read the Word? Yeah, probably so, so just go ahead and get used to that. It's just a new, a new thing we're doing, and we're going to continue it even when we're moving out of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Father, we pause this morning and we recognize the task before us and it's not an easy one. The Father, to follow the footsteps of John and Ezekiel and Daniel and even Paul into a place that is so different than anything we've ever experienced. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to see clearly this morning because, Father, what happens in this text and why you saw fit to make sure we had this text is for a very important reason. So, Father, as we attempt in a very limited way to be able to understand what John saw, Father, I pray that this will be more than just a description of the things that he saw, but Father, that it would take root in our lives that that this is important, vastly important to where we live today, for what we're facing today. Father, in this room and watching online this morning, there are people that are overwhelmed with fear. Father, there are people in this room and watching online this morning that are overwhelmed with worry. They're overwhelmed with the troubles and cares of this life. They are, each day of their life is lived out afraid of what that day may hold. Father, they're scared of what's going on in our world. They're scared of what's going on in the government. They're scared of what's going on with their neighbors. They're scared of what's going on in this county. And Father, that fear overwhelms them. And Father, that fear is what drives them and the decisions that they make every day. And Father, they're desperately trying to take control of these situations. And Father, from that, worry takes root. Father, I believe you have a word for us this morning, especially those of us who are struggling with fear and worry that flows right out of this throne room. So, Father, guide us in your word this morning. We ask it in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. On May 10th, 1940, the German Nazi army enters the Netherlands for the sole purpose of overtaking that city and taking that city and making it part of the Nazi regime. On one of the streets in that city, on one corner, there was this small watchmaker shop. And in the grand scheme of what was going on, you wouldn't think that a watchmaker shop would have any impact on this massive army that is getting ready to descend into this community. But inside that watchmaker shop is a family, and that family just happens to be a group of people who are followers of Christ. And inside of that family, the, the very first woman in Dutch culture, Dutch culture, Netherland culture, it, you know, watchmaking, that was a big deal in that culture. The very first woman to ever be licensed as a watchmaker, a female, also was part of that family, and she worked downstairs in the family business making watches and upstairs was their home and where they lived. And this family, the two of the daughters, one's daughter's name was Betsy, the other daughter's name is Corey. Well, you know her as Corey Ten Boom. And this, these two sisters made it a point to get involved in something that was happening underground, something that was trying to be hid from the German war machine. You see, there was an underground movement to protect those people that the Germans wanted to destroy. 
that the Germans were specifically looking for Jews and they were going house by house to look for anyone who associated with Judaism or any group of people that they had deemed less than. So as they would go house to house, they would come into your house and they would go through all of your closets, they would go through all of your rooms and they would look to see if you were hiding anyone that they wanted to arrest and then send off to a concentration camp. This family, because of these two daughters who joined that underground movement, got together with their family and said that they needed to do something. They needed to do something to protect those people that the Germans wanted to destroy. So what they did is they went upstairs in their living quarters and they began to build places to hide people. Maybe inside of a wall, maybe under some floorboards. And they began to take in Jewish people who were running for their lives from the German army. And they would hide them and they were in this upstairs room. And they knew the risk that was involved. And of course, there's a book, The Hiding Place at Corey Tim Boom Road that you need to read, quite frankly. You need to get that book and you need to read that book. It talks about this family's journey as they followed Jesus and tried to love people, even to the point of taking great risk, because they knew what would happen. If they were caught, if they were caught, they would be arrested and more than likely sent to a concentration camp, and that is exactly what happened. Their family was sold out by a neighbor. And Corey Tim Boom and her sisters were be taken off and placed into a concentration camp. And one of the worst parts, the most difficult parts of her life, and even then, Corey Tim Boom in that concentration camp continued to serve people, continued to love people in those deplorable conditions. And she would, she would write this one day. She would say, if she would be asked multiple times, how in the world could you continue to love people and continue to serve Christ in such a horrible situation? I want to read to you what she wrote. It's a simple, simple phrase. She said this, quote, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. I don't know about you, but I think that's a really important thing to wrap our arms around today. Because if you are frozen in fear and you're overwhelmed with worry and you're looking at the same news I'm watching and you look at that stuff and the next thing you know, the next 24 hours of your life, you are spent completely consumed with worry. Or maybe it's some family situation you've got or some health condition you've got or something that's going on with a child of yours or something that's going with your extended family and every day of your life is consumed with worrying about what tomorrow holds. And this place of worry flows out of a desire to control. And it flows out of a place of, of, of abject fear of what could happen. So here's, here's where, how you spend your time. Every day, you're spending your time with your mind thinking about the what-ifs. You are consumed with the what-ifs. I've been there. And what you're doing in that place of worry and fear, you're trying to come up with every possible contingency plan. And in that moment, you're trying to come up with every plan of, well, if this happens, I'm going to do this. And if this happens, I'm going to do this. And, and you're spending your time trying to figure it all out. And at the same time, fix it all. That is a horrible, hard way to live. And I think what we're going to look at today and next Sunday is going to help you tremendously if we can just see what John saw. If we, could just, if we could just take this journey with John, and by the way, this is a journey that very few people have taken. Very few. As far as getting to see what John saw, we, we think of Ezekiel chapter 1. We think of Daniel chapter 7. We, th we, think of, we think of Moses up on the mountain of Mount Sinai with God. 
And then in, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about someone in his life, we know he's talking about himself, that was taken up into that third heaven. We're, we're getting ready to move into a new section of the book of Revelation. We, we got done with the seven letters, and we kind of got used to those, right? We have a church and a literal location where Jesus says to John, write this down for this particular church. Hey, church, I know what's going on. I know what's in your heart. I know what's really happening in your ministry, and I have some problems. Or I have a commendation for you. You're doing an excellent job. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, now in John, or in Revelation chapter 4, everything changes at this point. And I think I know why that Jesus and God and the Godhead Trinity made chapter 4 and 5 right before what happens next. So we just got done looking at seven churches. And in that last church, we talked about Laodicea. And what do we have at Laodicea? We have Jesus on the outside of his church knocking on the door saying, man, I'd like to come in because I've got some things you need. You're, you're trying to find purpose and meaning in life, and I've got all that you need. And he, he's knocking on the door. And as far as we know, the church at Laodicea never opened that door. You know why we know that? Because the church at Laodicea, not long after they received that letter, ceased to exist. As a matter of fact, you'd be interested to know that all seven of those churches that we just spent the last several weeks looking at, none of them exist anymore. None of them. As a matter of fact, in place of those churches, you know what's there now? You know what's in these areas now? Islam. All through Turkey, all through Asia Minor, the predominant religion is radical Islam. And if you have a church in those areas, you're in hiding, but it's none of the churches we just mentioned. There's no churches in those areas. We find the ruins of those churches, but no churches. So the last part of Laodicea, what did we find? We have Jesus on the outside knocking on a door. And then notice what happens in Revelation 4. John sees an open door, an open door in heaven. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, if you don't mind back up there just a minute, I want to remind you of this verse. Just turn over one page. Revelation 1, 19, Jesus says to John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that will take place after this. And I told you that that's an outline, kind of the book of Revelation. So he says to John, John, write down the things that are. What are those things? The seven churches. Those are seven literal churches that Jesus knew about, and he wrote specifically to those churches to deal with those issues. But now in chapter 4, we're going to talk about the things that will be. So from chapter 4 all the way, actually from chapter 6 forward, we're going to talk about the things that are coming. And what we're going to find in chapter 6 when we get there, and I hate to uh, be a disappointment to you, but it's going to be pain, death, destruction, unlike anything the world has ever seen. As a matter of fact, just walking through chapter 6 and forward is going to be very hard to hear. That God is going to pour out his full wrath upon this planet and, and it's, it's an undulterated wrath. It is a clearly communicated wrath. It's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. The Old Testament has some things that happened back there that's kind of a foreshadowing, but nothing has ever happened in the history of humanity about what we're going to read in chapter 6 and following. So we have chapters 4 and 5 stuck right in there. This week we're looking at God on the throne. We're looking at the throne room of God and what is happening in that throne room. So this week's focus is on the creator himself, God. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus in this same throne room, in this same vision. Now, why is it that God saw fit to give us this vision before we get to chapter 6? Why is it that before we get into the death and mayhem, God says, you need to take a look at what's happening in the throne, in the throne room. 
You need to see what's happening in this room. Here's why I think it is. God wants us to see the world and the universe from his perspective. And what better way to do that than to enter into his throne room as John does? And what we're going to see there is God and all of his power, beauty, providence, sovereignty. And that's going to prepare us for what's happening next with all the tribulation, brokenness, and wrath. You see, I think God's given us kind of some preparation here. That as we see God in all of his power, we don't have to worry about what's coming next because the God who's seated on the throne is fully and completely in control. When I was in second or third grade, uh, this is going to tell my age a little bit because there's probably a few people in the room that can connect with this. But when I was in second or third grade, this was late 70s, you know, it was 79, 80, right in that range. Uh, the school that I went to, we would have fire drills, right? You, the alarm goes off, you have to go out of the building. Then we would have tornado drills. And the tornado drills were different. You didn't run outside the building, you stayed in the building, and you would get in the hallway and put your head down between your legs and put your arms over your head, and then when the alarm goes off, you go back to your classroom. But in the late 70s, early 80s, we also had another drill that kind of was phased out in the 80s, and it was a nuclear bomb drill. Yes, folks, list, ladies and gentlemen, they would come and tell the kids, we're going to have a nuclear bomb drill today. And as a third grader, I'm going, what's a nuclear bomb? And what was really weird is the drill was the same as the tornado drill, which once I figured out what an atom bomb was, because I went home and started talking to my parents, and they told me what an atom bomb was, and then I got to thinking, well, why are we in the hallway putting our head down? That seems rather ridiculous, because this bomb obliterates everything. If I'm in the hallway with my head down, I mean, I'm thinking this as a third grader. I can remember it. I remember going to my parents. I don't remember exactly what my dad told me, but I remember going to my parents after I'd learned enough in school to know that there's a button somewhere in the government that our president can hit and launch all these bombs and just blow the whole world up. I, mean, I couldn't fathom that, but I was scared to death of it. I was always, always had a lot of fear with storms, tornadoes, and now I just add to the list nuclear bombs, which I didn't even know what that was. The more I learned about it, the more I was afraid of it. And I remember my dad saying, no, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that. God's in control. He said something along those lines, but it gave me peace. You see, I, I believe that, that you're afraid of something. We all are. It can be different for you than it is for me, but I think we could all admit that, that fear sometimes controls us far more than we'd like to admit. So whatever you're facing in this life, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a wonderful thing if we can collectively together walk through this open door that John sees. I think it would be a good idea for us to walk with John and Ezekiel and Daniel into this place and Isaiah and see what they saw. Now, I'm going to tell you this morning, I'm going to have a hard time telling you everything that John saw because, quite frankly, we're not told everything that John sees. And quite frankly, John tells us the best way that he can because I believe John is overwhelmed with what he sees, just like Isaiah was and just like Ezekiel was and just like a Daniel was. But what we're going to find is that all of these, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, John, they all see very similar things. So let's take a look at this open door. John says, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Notice that exclamation mark there, point there. He says, I saw an open door in heaven. Now, when we, when we think about this open door 
There are some instances in the New Testament, one that really comes to mind. In Acts chapter 7, there's a guy by the name Stephen. And Stephen is a follower of Jesus in the early church. And Stephen has an opportunity to preach an incredibly powerful message. And what he does is he goes back in the Old Testament and he points out how that the Jews have always destroyed God's spokesman. And he says, you killed the prophets, you killed all these people. You have a history of rejecting the truth. And then he says, you guys, you are the ones who crucified the Messiah. Well, you can imagine that they didn't take too kindly to that. So what did they do? They decide they're going to stone Stephen. So they begin to throw stones at him. And Stephen, as he's being hit with these stones, as he's about to die, he looks up into heaven and there's a door open. And guess what he sees? He sees into the throne room of heaven. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It's as if he's saying to Stephen, come on home. So John, knowing that story, John knows that story. John knew what happened to Stephen. I think that's part of the reason we have that exclamation point. John is excited that the prospects of what happened is going to happen here. John is an old man on the Isle of Patmos who's been punished for his faith. What a great gift that God is going to give to John. So he says to John, here's an open door. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So John goes into some kind of trance-like state. He doesn't give us all the details as to what happened here. But if we compare it to what happened to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. All I know is I went up into the third heaven. And I heard some things and I saw some things. John doesn't tell us. All that we know is that John goes up in the spirit. Now, some commentators at this point would say that is some picture and imagery of the rapture. While I appreciate their their ability or want to try to make that connection, I'm not going to make that connection today because the original readers that heard this wouldn't have made that connection. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 stands powerfully on its own. But what's interesting, what you need to know and why people come to this conclusion is because the word church, ecclesia, will not be mentioned another time until we get all the way to Revelation chapter 22. Where's the church? That's a good question, isn't it? I think it's a very good question. The last time we saw church mentioned was concerning Laodicea. That word, ecclesia, will not be used again until we get all the way to Revelation 22. But nonetheless... John is in the spirit, and he goes into the throne room of heaven, and he says he sees one seated on the throne. Now, it's at this point, I would love for John, and I'm certain you would like to hear this as well, that John gives us an accurate description of what God looks like. Does he have a white beard, long white hair? Is he really big, or what does he look like? Well, guess what? You would join all the Old Testament patriarchs who ask the same thing. God, what do you look like? God, I want to see you. Moses said to God, God, I want to see you. I want to see you in all your glory and majesty, but we know that God never really does that, even with Moses. Sticks Moses in a rock, covers him up, lets Moses see just the back portion of his train. So what's going on here? Why why is it that, that all that John sees, John leaves out those specific details as to what God actually looks like? So let's look on. He says, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, 
and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that looked like emerald that encircled the throne. So why does John describe the throne and God in those ways? Because that's what he sees. And John is doing the best he can in describing what he sees, but there's something else you need to understand that's very important. We need to turn over to 1 Timothy to get it, though. Turn over to 1 Timothy, just a few pages over, not too far. And I want you to see what Paul said to this young pastor about some attributes of God that's very important in what we're seeing in Revelation. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, and let's pick it up verse, um, verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 17. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is, this is simply Paul breaking into a moment of worship and praise as he's writing this letter to Timothy. But in that letter, notice what he says. He says, this king, the God of all ages, is immortal and invisible, and he is the only God. He is to be honored, he is to be worshiped, and he is eternal. Turn over a few pages to chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 16. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. So, so Paul opens the letter to Timothy, praising God. He closes the letter this way, talking about God. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. Go back to Revelation. So what, is, what was Paul saying? Now remember, this is at the end of Paul's life. Paul had already been taken up into that third heaven, and the reality is, is that I would imagine that as he shared that, people would want to ask Paul, Paul, what did God look like? What does Paul say? Don't know. He didn't give us all the details that John gave us. But Paul says the reality is, is no one has ever seen God. No one has ever laid eyes on him. So when, when, when John enters this throne room in the spirit, Here's the only thing he can describe to tell us what God looks like on that throne. And all he sees is overwhelming light, overwhelming power, overwhelming purity. He says, Jasper stone. That's had the look of a diamond. It was clear, pure, and it speaks of purity. Anywhere you see the stone Jasper is speaking to purity. And certainly in that moment, John says, it was like Jasper stone. It was clear light, bright, penetrating. But also there was this carnelian stone in it. It gives off kind of a red hue. And, and, and oftentimes red is associated with judgment. So John is saying in that moment upon that throne, high and lifted up, I see purity and I see beauty and I see power and I see, well, the power to judge. Interestingly enough, if you go back to Exodus 28, Moses gives the descriptions of the breastplate that the high priest would wear. And in that high priest, in that garment in that breastplate, there were stones that were inlaid. And the first stone was jasper, and the last stone was carnelian. Again, speaking to purity and also the judgment of God. He says that around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Now, everywhere we see a rainbow mentioned in the whole entire Bible, what is it connected to? It is connected to Noah and the great flood where God judged the earth and then placed a rainbow in the sky to say, I will never judge the earth with a flood again. So this rainbow is the only way that, that John can describe it is, it is, a, it is a green that circles the throne. And John is speaking here of just the faithfulness of God in that moment. 
So when we put it all together, what do we have? We have an image of God that is powerful, majestic. We have an image of God that is righteous in all splendor and glory and faithfulness. In that moment, when John looks at the throne, John is not concerned about whether God has a beard. What John is concerned about is the person on that throne is faithful, righteous, pure, holy, powerful. And I would imagine that even in the spirit, John is on his face trying to dig a hole to get as low as he can because that would be the only right response in that moment. Folks, you got to understand that this God that we serve is more than just something we read on the pages, something that we just talk about. He is enthroned with power and majesty and glory, and he is absolutely 100% control in everything that is happening in this world, completely and utterly. And if that's true and your faith is in him, then we've got to circle back to the whole idea of worrying and fear. Let's read on. It says in verse 4, and there was... Around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. There's a lot of controversy as to who these elders are. I'll tell you where I come down on this. Depending on what commentary you read or what online source you read, they really kind of come down into two categories. One category is they're angels. They're powerful angels. They're seated upon these thrones, and there's several Commentators that I respect that, that come on, down, on that side. The other major uh, opinion is this, that these elders, because John doesn't tell us exactly who they are, he just says there's 24 elders there. The other prevailing option is, is that they represent all of God's work in time and space to redeem humanity back to himself. Old Testament, how did he do that? Through the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was his way to say to the world, I love you and I want you to be right with me. And then when we get into the New Testament, what do we have? We have the church. And both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, 12 is an important number. In the Old Testament, the 12 tribes. In the New Testament, the 12 apostles. So I think what we have here with these 24 elders is simply a representation of God's work in the world through Israel and through the church to redeem a lost humanity to himself. Now, why do I come down on that opinion? The white garments and the gold crowns. White garments speak of, well, purity. Not purity that they have and worked out themselves, but a purity that was given to them. We're going to see that more next week in chapter 5. But also these crowns, these victor's crowns, are they, are they the focus? Are their crowns and their abilities and their power the focus? No, you're going to see in just a minute, it's exactly the opposite. While they have the 24 thrones, there's only one throne in that room that matters. And those 24 elders are going to show what really matters in that room in just a moment. So hold on. That's why I believe it represents all of the redeemed From Old Testament to New Testament. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So now we're in this throne room. We see all the colors, the bright penetrating light. We see the majesty, the purity, the righteousness, the faithfulness of the one seated on that throne. We see around that throne 24 elders, and and we see these seven torches. Now, we've already talked about that in week one, where we talked about those seven spirits actually represent the wholeness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit himself. Again, we'll see that some more next week. But here's what you got to understand, that in this room, by the time we get to next week, we're going to see the beauty and the power of the Godhead Trinity all in one place. We have God the Father, We have God the Holy Spirit, and next week we'll take a look at the Son who is also in the room. 
But notice he says, thunder, lightning, rumblings. This sounds a lot like what happened in Exodus 19. If you go back to Exodus 19, you have Moses talking with God, and God says, okay, I'm going to meet you on the mountain tomorrow, and I'm going to give you the law. But the people, the people need to understand. And remember, there were two million people at the base of that mountain that Moses had led out of Egyptian bondage. They all had the same curiosity that you and I have. And the curiosity is, wow, I wonder who God really is. Can, can, we, can we go up there on the mountain and, and see what Moses sees? God says to Moses to tell the people, don't you dare come up on this mountain. God says to the people, you better stay at the base of the mountain. The priesthood, they can come up a little bit. Joshua's going to come a little farther with you. But Moses, only you can be on the top with me. Everyone else has got to stay at the bottom. If they cross this line, if they get too close, I will kill them. Does that sound odd? I mean, in our, in our, in our world in which we live, this New Testament covenant, God's loving, right? God is, God is altogether love, and that's certainly true. But isn't it amazing in the Old Testament how many times God says, stay back? <laughs> There's a good reason for that. As a matter of fact, all through the Old Testament, we see story after story of people who didn't listen. There's this guy, I'm just going to give you the quick version. There's this guy. They got the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And there's this guy who's there, and, and the cart shaking around, and the, the Ark of the Covenant looks like it's about to fall. What does he do? He puts his hand out, although they've been warned, puts his hand out, touches the Ark of the Covenant. Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God with his people. This guy reaches out, touches the Ark, and man, he falls dead on the spot. Seems a little cruel, doesn't it? Well, what about the Philistines? They steal the Ark of the Covenant, and the next thing you know, they're eating up with tumors. They're about to die until they get that thing away from them. And all the way through in the tabernacle, God says to the people, now, only the high priest, only the one that I've designated can come back here and offer the sacrifice. If anybody else comes back here, you're a dead man. All through the Old Testament, over and over again, is God saying, stay back. I think we need to catch a little bit of that today. God is not your BFF. He's not some little puppet you control. He's not something you can boss around. Listen, the Bible says that God is a consuming fire, and he demands respect. And from the Old Testament, we hear a God say, stay back. But then something miraculous and amazing and beautiful happens in the New Testament, and it happens at a cross where Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, dies dies, not because of any sin he committed. He was perfect and pure in every way. He was the perfect lamb that all those other lambs that had been slain was pointing towards. And he dies, and something happens at the temple. The veil is torn from the top to the bottom. And it's almost after 1,500 years, God says, now, now, because of what my son has done, I welcome you in. Why is that? It's because Jesus had to die. He had to be the perfect sacrifice. Our faith in him cleanses us, makes us whole, but not only makes us whole, but we are, priest, we are a priesthood. Peter said we're a priesthood. We now get to commune with God. Here, John in this throne room is welcome into this throne room in the spirit, and we've got flashes of lightning and thunder. So it's not as though the God we worship in the New Testament is different than the God in the Old Testament. He is still to be respected. He is still to be honored. He is still to be revered. He is not something you can bring down to your level, and neither should you try. There should be some healthy fear for God. 
And anytime I see a lack of healthy fear among a church or among a believer, I'm concerned because you don't know who he is if you don't have a healthy fear for him. Notice that in this upper room, or in this room, that not the upper room, but the room that John has been taken up into, notice that John is not storming the steps of the throne to demand some answers from God. I've had people tell me this before. I've had people tell me, Pastor, when I die, when I get there, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, I got a whole list of questions that I'm going to ask Jesus. And I'm going to demand some answers. And I'm going to, I, want, I want to know why my loved one died at such a young age. I want to know why my parents went through what they went through. I want to know why I went through. All, and I, I want a whole list. I got all these bullet points. I need, some, I need some answers. No, you will not. No, you won't. Because I don't see John doing that. Because if anybody had any questions, it would have been John. John, who's been beaten. John, who is now sleeping on a slab of cold rock on an island called Patmos. If anybody has any questions, it would be the Apostle John. But John is not ascending the throne saying, hey God, can you and I have a conference? You see what has happened over time is you've got so accustomed to God that you've redefined him and you've forgotten who he is. And I think this throne room needs to remind us of who he is. I think we need a, a grand reset in the local church. I think we need a grand reset in our way we think about a holy God, that he is far greater than you can imagine. He is far more powerful than you've ever thought. He is so much in control of everything in the universe, you're not even mindful of even one thing most of the time. Listen to what he says. He says, the thunders and lightning the seven spirits before God and the, before the throne was it like a sea, like glass, like crystal. John sees something, the only thing he can describe is like a, a vast body of water. But the way he describes it is absolutely flat and crystal clear. Why is that? Well, all through the Old Testament, the ocean, the sea is described as something foreboding, something to be afraid of, something that is, well, scary. But here, in the presence of God, there is absolute calmness, perfection. Beauty, nothing to be worried about, nothing to be afraid of. And then notice what happens around the throne. On each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now this part, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to just tell you straight up, this is some strange stuff we're looking at here, okay? And when we read this stuff, it kind of sets us on our heels a little bit because here's the thing, we don't have anything in our context that can even come close to this. In other words, we can't point to that and go, oh, that's what John's talking about. It's not. Now, John is very familiar with Ezekiel. He's familiar with Daniel. He's familiar with Isaiah. He knows those three guys. He knows their writings very well. But when he gets to heaven, he sees what Ezekiel saw, and he sees what Daniel saw. And then, of course, he says, here's what I saw. I saw creatures with eyes front and behind. And that's strange, isn't it? I think it speaks to the omniscience of the one sitting on the throne who created these beings. In other words, as we saw with those seven churches, God says, Jesus says, I know what's happening in your church. Nothing's hidden from me. I think these, these angelic beings in all of their oddity and strangeness also speaks to who's sitting on the throne and who's sitting on the throne sees all and knows all. Verse 7, the living creature, the first one was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like a living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth was an eagle in flight. If you go look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and Daniel 7, you're going to find a whole lot of agreement between what these men saw. Not exact, but very close. So what do we, what do we make of these beings? Well, these beings 
are created by God. They're powerful. They're, they're majestic. But they also, they speak to their creator, the lion. We see the lion all through the Bible. And what do we see when we think about a lion? We think about, well, the power of the lion. We think about the majesty of the lion. We think about all that is connected with that particular animal and all that he has and brings. And then we think about the ox. And we think about that ox has been domesticated to serve humanity, that it has great power and great strength, but yet it serves. And then we have the face of a man. And I think that speaks to the uniqueness of humanity, that humanity was created with the image of God, the only creation that God performed that bears his image. And then we have the eagle. And and in the Romans, among the Roman emperors, when they would charge into a city or when the king or the emperor would come, they would have flags. And often on those flags would be the picture of an eagle. Or maybe the eagle would be in the crest. And the reason is, is that the eagle was associated with deity, with power, swiftness, judgment. So here we have these four beasts, and I believe these four beasts are pointing right back to the creator and how God created them. Now, we could spend days and days trying to figure out all that these creatures are, but I think we need to move on to the next part because I think it's very important. Notice what they're saying. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, here it is, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they take their crowns off their heads and they cast them at the feet of the king, the sovereign ruler of the universe. This is what I was talking about earlier. Those thrones that are around the throne, every one of those thrones are telling us, everyone seated on those thrones are telling us there's only one throne in that throne room that matters, and it's the one that God is seated on. That's why they take their victor's crowns and they throw them at the feet of God. It's because they know that that crown is not because they're good people, not because of the works they've done, not because they've earned it, because a sovereign God in his good grace allowed them to have a victor's crown. The reason they have victory is because of the God sitting on that throne. Because they are there. The reason they are there is because of the power sitting on that throne. The reason those 24 elders, and by the way, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, also looked at this moment, and he saw myriads upon myriads upon myriads of people there, and they are all there. I will be there. The reason I'm there is not because I'm a good guy, not because I've done some good things, not because I'm a preacher, but because I have been saved and set free and redeemed. That's why. It's because a son of God died on a cross, shed his blood, and resurrected. It is not because I'm a good person, because I'm a lousy human being. It's because I have the righteousness of Christ upon my life, and God says, that is enough. And if he says it's enough, then how dare I ever try to work out my salvation? How dare you ever offend God to such a degree that you would say, no, you know what? I'm just going to work it out myself. No, you won't. You can't. It's impossible. So you either come by Christ or you don't come at all. You either surrender to him or to surrender to something less than. There is no in between. There's no middle ground here. John says that those 24 elders join in worship because they know the reason they're there 
is because of the power on the only throne that matters. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. Notice this. We have this phrase, and I've told you before that when you see a phrase repeat over and over, we need to pay attention to that. We see in this text repeated, I think at least four times, he who lives forever and ever, he who lives forever and ever, he who lives forever and ever. I am as convinced today as I've ever been in my life that if you don't know who you are, and you don't know why you're here, and you don't know how the universe came to be, you will never be able to figure out your purpose in your life. And you have a couple of options, really two predominant ones. Either on the one hand, everything you see, the stars, the moon, the cosmos, those massive planets that you studied in school, all the planets that are orbiting around the sun, this very blue planet that we're on right now, the mountains and the oceans and all of this, is one big, huge cosmic accident. Sometime billions and billions of years ago, there was some explosion. And, and the universe has been expanding ever since. And out of that explosion came our galaxy, and out of that galaxy came our solar system, and out of that solar system happens to be one blue planet that just happens to be exactly the right distance from the sun to support life. And then on that planet, over millions and millions of years, eventually this salamander-like thing comes up out of the water, and it eventually grows legs, and eventually that salamander turns into what we know to be a horse, and a dog, and a donkey, and a giraffe, and an elephant, and a gorilla, and eventually you. After billions and billions of years. Let me tell you something. If you believe that, you've got more faith than I've got. Now, after all of that time, after all of that time, we've got all that we see, right? We, everything that's here is here. And, and you know, we got this uh, survival of the fittest. That's one of his main, Darwin's main theory, survival of the fittest. And so only the fit are going to survive. Everything else is going to die off. That's Sounds happy, doesn't it? So why do we live? So within Darwin's theory, what's the purpose of life? Well, get this. There is no purpose of life. Just get all you can get. Live it up. Party it up. Listen, if all that's going to happen to you is go into a grave and the worms crawl in and the worms crawl out, if that's your destiny and that's all there is, then yeah, you can make a pretty strong case for partying it up, can't you? But you know, you know, deep down, there's something beyond that grave. You know. Until you understand who you are, do you understand that you were created by a holy God? Yes, in your mother's womb you were knit together, but God knew you before you were knit. He knew you. And he has a path and a purpose for your life. And yes, after you die, you will face him. You, you will stand before this, this God, and you will stand before this throne, and you will give an account. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe in him or not, whether you're an atheist or not, you will not miss this appointment. And I would recommend that you bow the knee now. I would recommend that you acknowledge him now. I would recommend that maybe you go back, go back in time to that vacation Bible school when you were a kid. And, you know, they told me about God, and they told me, and I just thought it was a fable. I didn't, you know, I never really thought that there was a God with this kind of power actually sitting on. I just thought that was all fables and stories like you know, all the other stories I heard. Look at verse 11. He says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, 
And by your will, they existed and were created. Not only did God call it in existence, he holds it all together. And he's holding it all together because you have a purpose of which to live out. The reason you're still up and right and breathing, the reason you have air in your lungs, the reason you have a heart beating in your chest right now is because God has willed it. You get that? And when the day that God says, your day is up, there's not a doctor on this planet, there's not a medication you'll take that will reverse what God has said. God says that he rises, he raises up kings and he tears kingdoms down. We see it all through history. The psalmist says that he has, that God holds the, the hearts of kings in his hand and he turns them like the rivers of water. We see it all through history. It's this God sitting on this throne. Listen, John is not bowing down to Allah. He's not bowing down to Buddha. He's bowing down to Jehovah God, the only creator and the only throne that matters. And you must too choose if you will bow or not. Isn't it amazing that God gave us that option? He didn't want to turn us into a bunch of puppets. You get to choose. But notice that if you choose otherwise, you must face the consequences. Listen to this quote. Listen to this quote. And then we've got just a few things I want to give you that I think are important. This comes out of a commentary uh, by a guy by the name, last name Hendrickson. I don't have this commentary. It was another quote that I saw in another one. But I think it's profound. Listen to this. He says, quote, Our affairs rest in the hands, not of men, but of God. Hence, when the world is enkindling the flames of hatred and slaughter, when the earth is drenched with blood, may our tear-dimmed eye catch a vision of the throne which rules the universe. In the midst of trial and tribulation, may our gaze be riveted upon the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. My goodness, that's powerful. I wish I'd wrote that. That is powerful. A few things we need to consider about the throne room and why, the, why we need this vision today. Why, what we're going to look at today and next week, why you need it right now, why you're going to need it tomorrow morning when you go back to work. First of all, it reminds us of who's in charge. I need to be reminded of who's in charge because we all have a tendency to try to build our own kingdom. And guess who sits on the kingdom of our own kingdom? Who sits as king on our own kingdoms? You want to take a wild guess here? You. We spend a lot of effort and time building our little kingdoms. And man, we feel good when we sit upon that throne and we've got the scepter and man, we feel good about what we've done. Whether that be the money, whether that be fame, whether that be climbing the corporate ladder, or whether it just be you are the dictator of your home. So you sit upon this throne thinking that you're ruling with authority and power when in fact God laughs. He laughs at our abilities and opportunities to build our own kingdoms when we don't realize that the one who sits on that throne is going to rule all kingdoms, including the one you're building. Yours has a time frame. Yours has an expiration date. Did you know that? Your kingdom has an expiration date. It doesn't matter how much power or fame a person is able to garner in this life. Given enough time, it's forgotten. And so shall it be, so shall it be with what you're trying to build. The central focus in that throne room is the Godhead Trinity, nothing else. Number two, we need a vision like this because it provides a heavenly perspective. I, there are times I simply need to see things from God's perspective. So when I look in this throne room and I see power and faithfulness and majesty, I, I, see, 
I see his sovereignty, his providence. What that does is allow me to let go of trying to control some things and say, God, I see you and all of your power. I've walked through the, the open door with John, and I see who you are. So guess what, God? I'm going to relax. I'm going to let go of some things. I need to see it from your, your worldview. I need to see the world from God's perspective. God is not up there fretting. God is not up there rubbing his hands. Oh, now what am I going to do with this? God is not up there having committee meetings with all the angels saying, okay, we got this issue on earth. I don't know what to do. What do y'all think? If that's your view of God, that's not the God of the Bible. That's something much weaker and much, insig- much more insignificant than the God we're looking at this morning. God's not up there rubbing his hands, fretting, worrying. God has no problems. He has plans. You're part of that plan. I need a heavenly perspective. So why am I spending so much time rubbing my hands if I'm one of his people? Why am I spending so much time worrying about things that are in the hands of God and I'm trying to snatch them out of his hand so I can take control? You know why that is? Because I want to be king just for a day or two or longer. I want to control the outcomes. I need a heavenly perspective. Third, it helps me to fight for what matters. You see, when I get that heavenly perspective and I see things from God's perspective, then it helps clarify for me what I need to be fighting for, what matters in life, what is important, what is my priorities. I think for some of us, I think we need our priorities shifted around. I think whatever's in the number one slot may not be the Godhead Trinity. It may be something else. By the way, whatever's in that number one slot That's what you're putting your trust in. No matter what you say about your faith, whatever's in the number one slot, that is what is controlling your life. It really needs to be the one sitting on the throne, the one who is actually in control. It helps me to fight for for things that matter. And if I don't have God in my life and in my view, if I I don't see him, then, then the death of my friends make no sense. The people who, who I love who are going through deep valleys right now, I can't make sense of that apart from God. I can't make sense of that apart from this throne room. I can't make sense of why people suffer the way that they do apart from a holy God who I know is right in all things, who, who everything he does, he does as a good father. Without that, I, I have got nothing to work with. Without him in this throne room and his power, folks, I got nothing. What's your soul anchored to? What what is it you run to? What is it you trust? Well, this throne room hopefully should help us clarify what is in the number one slot and helps us to determine what we should be fighting for. And then finally, it should lead us to worship with abandon. Worship with abandon. You know, if God being on the throne and all of his power and sovereignty and grace, he's in control, does does it really matter if we worry about raising our hand to praise him or whether we sing, is, is that re- are we going to be, are we going to be held back because of what somebody else sitting around us might think? But in that moment, God's calling you to a deeper place of worship. He, listen, God's calling you out of the kiddie pool to the deep end of the pool. In that moment where God is calling you, whether that be a deeper level of commitment, a deeper place in your prayer, a deeper, deeper walk in the word. If God's calling you out of the kiddie pool over to the deep end of the pool, What else have you got going on that's more important than that? Nothing. And the throne room, the vision, the open door helps us to see that. 
Helps us to put our priorities in line. How are your priorities this morning? Where are they? What's number one, number two, number three? You know what they are. If you need some help determining that, what, what gets your money? What gets your time? What gets your attention? Is it Netflix? Is that it? Is number one in your life streaming the next binge watch of whatever? Is that, is that it? For some people, it is. For some people, the number one is, oh, I got to keep my social media image up right. You know, I got to get people, I got to get more likes, I got to get more friends, I got to get more clicks. Is that it? You know what that is? That's building your own kingdom. And just like every other kingdom, it will fall. And just like every other so-called king who thinks they're kings, they too will bow before this one king. And I suggest, and I invite you to do that now. It will change your life. It will give you purpose. It will help you make sense of this crazy world. Why would you not do it? Why would you put it off? Why would you not want to reprioritize your life around what John sees in that upper room? Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace, and we thank you, Father, that while there's so much more that could be said about this moment that John experienced, Father, I believe that's all you want me to say today. So, Father, if that's all that needs to be said, then, then take what has been said, and I pray that that truth would find fertile soil, soil that would be ready to receive the truth, and that fruit may be the result, whether that be repentance, where we realize, Father, for the first time in our life that something else is number one, or maybe salvation, for the one who is far from you, the one who's never put their faith in you, who's been chasing everything else but you. And Father, now they find out that you have a plan for their life, a purpose, meaning, love, forgiveness. Maybe for the one, Father, who is scared to death of what tomorrow may hold, who's worried to the core of their being, who, who finally, Father, maybe right now in this moment needs to begin to let go of the fear and the worry. And simply trust the one who is on the throne, who is sovereign over everything in this universe. Whatever it may be, Father, have your will and your way. We thank you for your power, grace, and majesty. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church.com. 